friends. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode seven of season two, The Art of What You Hate. So I want to do a story today about our propensity to make the stuff that we're against in the world. Um, Secret Sauce, as as those of you who know, who've been listening, and for those of you that are just tuning in for the first time or second time, Secret Sauce at its core is about the mysterious ingredients, the invisible ingredients in artwork and life. But it's also about the way that our life is one of the, if not the coolest artwork that we'll make while we're here on this planet. And it's about the ways that how we paint a painting or how we write a song or how we sculpt a clay pot can be this freaking amazing model for the ways that we make in our lives if we look at it that way. I'm fascinated with this idea. And so for me in this podcast, talking about the ways that we're artists in life is as important, if not more important, than talking about the ways that we're artists in a studio. And I want to talk today about a propensity that all humans have. I have it, you have it, everyone has it, to make the things they hate. Um, and I want to talk about it in a framework of a story, an experience of mine. I also want to talk about it in the framework of what's happening in the news right now, in the media right now. Um, and I... I've been wanting to talk about it because, not because I think anything needs to be done with that information that, you know, we talk about today. On the contrary, I don't know if anything needs to be done. I think it just needs to be acknowledged. And I've noticed that there is this ostriching that happens around this topic that people myself included, really resist the idea that they make what they hate, right? We, we all kind of have this general assumption that when we're making things, it's the stuff we want to see more of in the world. And to suggest that we all <laughs> have the propensity to make stuff that we really dislike in the world. This, to make the stuff that we say we dislike when we see others make it, that's a really you know, radical and controversial idea, and it doesn't sit well with a lot of people. And so for me, doing this podcast episode is less about, you know, action and more about just recognizing. It's taken me a long time, if I'm being honest, my my entire life to wrap my head around this idea. And I remember when it was first posited to me, I really recoiled, um, like not not me, fuck you. <laughs> I'm not like that. And then I started to see, oh yeah, I am like that. And the recognition changed my life. And it's I guess it's my hope it will for you too. Before we dive in, this episode is sponsored by the Heart School Network. The Heart School is a community of process-focused compassionate, passionate artists who are interested in process-focused art classes and art making. 
Um, Process-focused art making is making for the joy instead of the product. Making for the process instead of some arbitrary goal of making a beautiful thing or selling a thing or getting an award or getting people to like your thing. Um, It's the way that little kids make work. And all of my classes are structured around process-focused making. And we've cultivated a sweet little group of people over there. So if you're into making art and you want to learn more about process-focused making, we do free classes so you can get your feet wet um, twice a month on the new moon and the full moon so you can sort of see what process-focused drawing is like. And if you like it, there's going to be, there currently is, and is going to be even more process focus art classes in all kinds of ways. We're in the middle of a process focus class on journaling right now with some really fabulous guest instructors. Um, we have a amazing collage artist coming to share her processes with us in the spring later on. So many cool things coming down the pike for the heart school. So if you like process and if you're not sure, here's, here's the thing. If you're not sure if you would like process focus art, If you like this podcast, you probably will. (laughs) It's free to sign up. It's a lot like social media. It's a lot like Facebook or Instagram. You make a profile, you post things, you can share things about yourself. You can share what you're working on with a community. The biggest difference is there's no ads. There's no creepy algorithm stalking you. It's completely safe and private and awesome. Um, the link is in the show notes as well as on my website, BeccaJBorelli.com, right there on the homepage. Um, request an invite. It's, it's a private network. Request an invite and see what it's all about. All right, let's dive in. So I want to start off by telling you a story. I've told this story on Instagram. I don't recall if I've told it on the podcast, but I want to apologize ahead of time or give the disclaimer ahead of time, maybe apology is a little intense. Um, I want to give the disclaimer ahead of time that I might have told it before on here, but that it's an important story to tell again in in the framework of this episode. So bear with me. It's a good story. And it's a story that has left an impression on me for over a decade now and has left an impression on other artists that have heard it as well. Um, so when I was an undergrad in art education, the first class I ever took was called kindergarten through sixth grade foundations. It was a foundational art class for, you know, elementary into junior high. And I remember like we all show up, all of us like 18 and 19 year old kids, we show up for this class we're waiting for our professor to come in. He walks in and the professor of this class also happened to be the department head of the art education department at Kent State University where I was going at the time in Ohio. But he also was a few years from retirement. So like he had this wealth of knowledge and wisdom, wisdom more than knowledge. Um, and I think it was that wisdom that caused him to start our first class this way. He sets down his briefcase and instead of like the usual introduction, here's the syllabus, this is what you can expect for the year, blah, blah, blah. Instead, he said, hi class, Um, my name's Joe. Uh, I want to tell you a story. 
to start off right off the bat. And so we're all kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. He said, this story is about when I was in elementary school. He said, I was seven. And that was in the 50s. (laughs) So, you know, it was a different era in education. And he proceeds to tell us this story. On this particular day, his classroom teacher pulled out ditto sheets um, for my 80 baby friends and 70 and 60 baby friends, anyone born in the 80s or earlier that went to school in the 80s or earlier, you know what ditto sheets are. Um, I'm guessing that the 90s babies and later aren't going to have direct experience with these things, (laughs) but they're basically the old school photocopies um, made with purple ink and it was smear all over your hand and smell kind of funny. And she had made this ditto sheet of the American flag because it was flag day. And she said, class, pull out your crayons. And, and Joe told us that they all had the same crayons, right? This was in the fifties. There was no 96 box of crayons at this time. It was just, everyone had eight colors. So everyone pulls out the same box, you know, and she says, I want you to look up here. She has this colored picture of a flag on the chalkboard and she shows them, you know, this is the red stripes. These are the blue square. Um, Here's the white stars and the white stripes. And then the pole is brown and the ball on top is yellow. And she said, I want you to take your time. Those that color the neatest, I'm going to hang up on the board in the hallway. You know, this is classic stuff, (laughs) right? And Joe loved art. Even as early as seven years old, he was so into art and he was excited because he knew that his would be chosen. He was really good at coloring. He loved coloring. And he starts out coloring and it just so happened that his desk was by the windows that looked out onto the playground and he could see the actual flag really close to the window. And he noticed as he was looking at it that the ball on the top of the flag wasn't actually yellow. It was gold. And he thought, oh, how can I make gold? And so he's, he pulled out his yellow, his orange, and his brown. And he started smearing them together in the, the ditto sheet. And then he like took his finger and he like pushed the wax around a little bit. And then he layered some more yellow on top. And he made a dang convincing gold (laughs) using his limited palette. And he was freaking excited. And he goes up to his teacher and he, you know, to show her what he's done. And she takes the ditto sheet and she stands up in front of the whole class and she holds it up and he's so proud. And she says, class, look, Joe's the only one that couldn't follow directions. And then she crumples it up in front of everybody and drops it in the trash can. And without saying a word, she gives him another ditto sheet and tells him to go back to his seat and follow directions. And (laughs) I've told this story before. I I remember what I remember the most is that all of my classmates in this undergraduate college course were just... I think all of us kind of felt like we'd been hit by a truck. Like all of us loved art, right? Like all of us loved art. And presumably all of us thought we loved kids (laughs) to choose to go into art education. 
And you could have cut the silence with a knife. I mean, everyone was just shell-shocked. And he, like, pauses, right? And we're we're all just sitting there, like, waiting for him to say something. And then he finally does. And he says, I tell this story on the first day of this class to everyone. And it's for two reasons. He said, the first reason is that I've been a teacher for a long time now and I see it from the other side. He said, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking this woman is a demon. <laughs> he said, but I, you know, I've been teaching for long enough to see that it wasn't about me. You know, there was a million things going on in that woman's life that would cause her to lash out at a seven-year-old over something as creative as mixing gold, right? He said, but there's something else that is important for me to tell you about this. He's like, this is the most important thing. He said, you will be in front of kids one day in this capacity. And everything that you say and everything that you do has the potential to be something they remember for the rest of their lives. I'm about to retire and I remember this like it was yesterday and, you know, not for a good reason. He said, and then, and then he said something that I I didn't get at the time. He said, and you know, he said, I know that all of you are thinking this will never be me. He's like, good, good. I'm glad you're thinking that. He said, and it probably will. At some point, it probably will be you. And I want to leave this story in your mind so that when it is you and you find yourself in front of kids doing something like this, that you remember this story. (laughs) You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of when I was like in fifth grade and the guidance counselor came to our class and she told us about how I think she said something like 80% of us would try drugs or something like statistically to scare us and I remember thinking that will never be me and then you know of course I'm in high school trying a joint for the first time and literally thinking of that freaking guidance counselor um you know I I never really got into smoking weed either. I I swear it was because of her. (laughs) But this was, this was sort of what it was like, right? He, you know, all of us were just like, no way. I would never freaking do that to a kid, right? I don't know if you can tell where this story is about to go, but it's going where you probably imagine. So fast forward, you know, a good five or six years. You know, I graduated about four years later and I took a couple gap years in Miami, Florida. I waited tables. I had a lot of fun. I've talked about that in other episodes of this podcast and what that time did. And it was magic, but I knew I wanted to be a teacher and I eventually came back to Ohio, which is where I grew up. And I took a teaching job, uh, teaching kindergarten through fourth grade. And my first year teaching was, and I've described this before, so I feel like for those of you that listen, you probably have heard me say this, but you know, it felt like I was getting clotheslined that first year. I I graduated from a pretty 
badass, you know, art education program. (laughs) I was in front of kids teaching in some capacity by my second year of undergrad. Like, you know, some programs, you know, the only time that people actually get in front of kids is when they're a student teacher at the very end. And then all of a sudden they're like, shit, I hate this, right? I was teaching kids by the time I was 19. And so when I graduated three years later, I was so comfortable in front of kids. So I came in feeling ready and I got clotheslined. There's no way to prepare. Not only is there no way to prepare a young teacher for what actual public school is like, there's no way for me to describe it to you. Like I, I was just interviewing my mentor, Andrea, who's going to be on this podcast next week. And she's about to retire. She's taught her entire career in the same district, the district I taught in briefly. I did my student teaching under her. She's amazing. She's shaped everything that I feel about sharing art with other people. And her wisdom is next level. And I'm so excited for you to hear from her. And she, um, like she, oh my God, I lost my train of thought. This has never happened to me before. <laughs> Pregnancy brain, I swear, this is what's happening to me. I was just like really on a mission to tell you a story and I, and I just like literally exited my <laughs> brain. I, I'm sorry, we were talking, I remember we were talking in the podcast about, you know, what it's like and how hard it is and that there's no way to describe it to people. Like you say that it's hard and people are like, yeah, yeah, it's hard. No, like I've done a lot of jobs, y'all. I've done so many jobs. I've had multiple careers. Um, And I can say that teaching is the hardest thing I've ever done and probably the one of the hardest careers you can have. And it's, uh, it's so tragic how little we pay teachers. Like that's why there's this flight flight from the teaching profession right now because it's so hard yeah I fully believe that I was able to start a small business and make it work because being a school teacher is like being a small business owner it's that hard and then you're doing it with 30 kids in the room for my small business friends listening to this like try to wrap your head around that that's so it's I would come home and fall asleep at 6 p.m I had nothing left. And so I just was really unnerved. I I thought, you know, up until that point, I had really thought this is what I'm put on the planet to do. And I realized that that's true, by the way. (laughs) But the public school system just took me like a washcloth and twisted from both sides. And all that was inside just came oozing out. (laughs) And I was like this wrung out dish towel at the end of five years it was you know not to be dramatic but that's what it felt like and about three months into my first year I was you know just trying to keep my nose above water that's all I was trying to do was just not drown and barely doing that you know and on this particular day I had first graders and we were painting this was my first painting unit with six-year-olds ever and I I struggled in a lot of ways my first year but the, the way I struggled most was that I didn't have good management especially around cleanup 
So my management was like, it was laughable. I would just like calling kids like your job is to sweep, your job is to clean the sink. And, and it was like, that sounds like a decent approach, right? But it's not enough when they're six. Like you need to spend months showing them this is how you sweep. There's 10 steps to doing it. And we're going to practice this class for a month, right? This is how you wash out a brush. And we're going to practice this for a month until you get it right. And I, I didn't know any of that at the time. And so it's my first time, you know, painting with them. The class had kind of gone well, but there was crap everywhere. Paint on the tables as there should have been. Water on the tables as there should have been paint and water on the floor as there should have been. And then I unleash these little minis to like do their own thing. And none of them have washed brushes in the sink before. None of them have sweat, like wiped paint off the floor before. And I just give them all this crap and like expect them to do it. And what of course happens, as you can imagine, is that it's a, a total zoo, total zoo. And that environment was compounded by the fact that my sensory nervous system, which is already really sensitive because I'm an artist and I feel things deeply. I process things 10 levels below the surface all the time was completely frayed. It was, I remember it was the end of the day, last class I had, and what it was like when I've told this story before, this is the metaphor that I think is so amazing at describing what it was like. I was like one of those Looney Tune characters that's slowly, like there's like a thermometer in their head and it's getting more and more red. And then when it gets to the top, their head like turns into like a whistle and starts like blowing really loud noises. Um, that was what was happening to me. and But I didn't catch it or recognize it. I was too new. And what was happening as the, the thermometer was filling with red was I was starting to spiral and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's almost time. The teacher is going to be here to pick them up. The room is still trash. She's going to see how incapable I am. She's going to go tell the principal. I haven't had my first review yet. She's going to like slay me in this review. I, just all of the bad things. Avalanche, snowball, you know. So this is, this is like the scene. This is like sort of the setting. And as this is all happening, there's a little boy named Kyle. And Kyle's job was to wash paintbrushes and he's at the sink and it's already nuts, right? Because I, like I was so poorly planned that he, he's at the sink trying to wash paintbrushes while other kids are coming up and dumping their supplies in the sink and trying to wash their hands. And it's, you know, this big, like mass of kids. <laughs> and at some point in all of this, one of the, Kyle discovers that when you put like he gets soap just like straight soap on his hands which are covered with blue and red dried paint and when the soap gets on his hands it turns into a paint extender right like that's what oil-based soap does and it turns the red and blue paint into purple immediately on his hands and he's six <laughs> this is excuse my language this is fucking magic right? Like 
this is this is probably the first time that Kyle's ever experienced this. If and if it's not, it's still amazing, right? He's so new. Like his little brain, this is so new and it's magic and he takes his hands and he's smearing this purple all over his hands and it's so awesome. So like why not keep going and he smears it all up his arms, all up his elbows, both sides. And he's freaking pumped, right? Like this isn't he doesn't know this is causing a problem. This is him exploring the world around him and he because he doesn't know this is causing a problem because he's so truly excited right in the middle of this chaos in the middle of the zoo he comes up to me and he sticks both of his hands up in the air just like fingertips to elbows purple everywhere and he says miss Borelli, look purple <laughs> right and and that was when my thermometer blew. It, it was just, and it, I became, I, be, I just became that teacher that Joe told me it would happen. He told me it would happen. I swore it would never happen. And I couldn't even stop it. I wasn't even able to catch it. It was just like, I turned into this like monster, right? I, and I take his hand, it's covered in purple paint and I, I grab it which is already kind of not cool, right? And, I, and I, I keep it up in the air and I go class really, really loud and everyone shuts up. And his face just breaks. He's like, his eyeballs are huge. He's staring at me. And I say, look at this. And, I'm, and, I, and everyone's just like staring, like what is she gonna do? And I say, if any of you ever does this, you will not be painting next time. And then I turn to Kyle and I say, you need to go wash your hands. And, and then I like, I, I grab this towel, right? And I'm just desperately like scrubbing tables. Like the teacher is going to come. The kids are everywhere. I'm trying to do all the cleaning myself. Kyle walks to the sink and this, and like a few minutes later, I feel this like little tug on my apron, you know, and it's this little little six-year-old girl and she says miss Borelli um I think you need to go check on Kyle and so I look up and he's he's at the sink um not washing his hands (laughs) just like ugly crying like that ugly cry where you can't you're like about to vomit like (gasps) you know like that kind of thing um totally traumatized like I I've just publicly shamed this kid and like you know maybe to some adults in the room it sounds like no big deal but but I'm thinking for most of you listening to this you realize that's a huge deal to a six-year-old like in the same way that crumpling an American flag in front of you know it's the same level I I did the exact same shit (laughs) and this was the wisdom of Joe because his teacher, his second grade teacher did not do what I did next. And I went and talked to Kyle. I apologized. He barely, like, he couldn't even look at me. He's like crying, you know, it didn't help. It was too late. Like the damage had been done. And I said, dude, I said, I promise when you come in next week, I'm going to apologize to everyone. And I, I said, I'm so sorry. And, and it was, but it was like, he laughed in tears. Like his teacher came, all my worst nightmares were realized. She saw the messy room. She saw that I made her kid cry, like all the things. 
and it was the last class of the day and they all leave and there's just shit everywhere and I burst into tears right like it was it was that kind of it was that kind of experience and sure you know so a week goes by the kids come back and we do circle time on the carpet before class starts and I, I pull Kyle to the front of the circle and he's sitting next to me and I publicly apologize to, to him in front of everybody. And I, and I was as direct as I could be and it still probably wasn't enough, but I said, class, what I did last week is not okay. If any other adult ever talks to you like that, it's not okay. And I'm so sorry to Kyle. I was having a bad day and sometimes adults have bad days and they do things that are not okay. And that was one of them. And then, then it was better. Like I remember seeing that shine, you know, in his eyes, like that's good teachers. Like that's what you're going for, right? Is the, the look and the eyes will never lie. And you know, that was the wisdom of Joe was he's like, I know that, I know that all of you are going to do this. It's part of the deal. We are wired to make the shit that we hate. And so I can't stop that from happening. Like, like there's nothing I can say that will stop you from doing this, but it can help you to mend it later. And he, and he was right. And so in that way, this podcast episode is about that idea, right? Like you don't need to do anything <laughs> when you leave this episode it's not a call to action or or anything like you know last episode was a was a little more of a call to action like you know considering rewiring your relationship to social media right this episode's different than that this episode is that you don't have to actually do anything it's just the noticing that matters because this shit happens to everyone whether they're an artist on a canvas or an artist in their life. And I guarantee that if you're listening and you do not identify as an artist in the classical sense, it doesn't matter because you are a hundred percent an artist in the human sense. You are creating your life like a canvas every day. And this type of experience is one that all of us do. And I want to delve into that a little bit and talk about how that even works, right? Like why why does this happen? Because it doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive to th- to and yet we all know, like I know people listening are nodding their heads like yes. Yes, I can think of a time where I did something that I'm so against. I, I, all of us have done this. And I was thinking a lot more about this because right now in the media is this uproar about violence against the Asian community. I mean, and this is the most recent example, but there have been so many in the past year, five years, decade that we can think of where our culture right now is collectively really trying to, for the first time, hold space for the pain that they've caused people who tend to be more vulnerable. And 
The reason I wanted to share this story is because I think there's a tendency, and, and cor- correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, I know you can't, like, literally, but it may be in your head. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. But I do think that when people, generally speaking, you know, not everybody, but generally speaking, when people, myself included, you included, the people that we love included, see things like this in the news, hear about these atrocities, the first reaction they have is is like the one that I had when I was a freshman in my undergrad. That monster, those monsters, I would never do that. I would never do that. And this is apples and oranges, right? Because (laughs) I'm guessing most people listening to this truly would not go shoot up, you know, groups of people based on their ethnicity um, that listen to this podcast. Like I just, I'm, I'm certain of that. And, and (laughs) what if there is something similar being recreated just in a different way. So let me elaborate. Um, when I was a school teacher, I quickly began to see things with my students that you all are seeing in the media. I would just see them up close. It was, it was hard. And I didn't work in a terribly struggling school district. I worked in an upper middle class school district. A lot of the kids were pretty privileged. Um, And still, and still, all of the horrible things you hear about in the world Um, I saw that they still came through the doors, like that there's only so much that privilege can protect. And, and then there was an abundance of kids that had very little privilege in, in my school district, even still. And really quickly, I started to have this experience. And I know so many people are having it in the world right now, because I I've seen it in myself, and I can recognize it a mile away when I see it in my social media feeds or when I hear friends and family talking, I started to have this really voracious desire to be good. Like I'm not part of this problem. Like there were problems coming into my classroom that were so not okay, right? Like kids seeing their mom get beat up by their dad, Um, kids not getting breakfast, every day. Um, kids holding space for their parents' trauma. Like, like five-year-olds would tell me stories. Like I remember one five-year-old, you know, telling me in graphic detail about her mom's abortion. Like what, (laughs) you know, like y'all, I, (laughs) and, and so there's this reaction that happens of like, oh, I'm not part of this. Like I'm better, right? I'm good. And and then my desire to be good became 
almost obsessive, like, and, and then all of that came crashing down the day that I reprimanded Kyle in front of everyone. And I thought, oh, (laughs) oh, I, I guess I'm just like this teacher (laughs) that I said I would never be like, wow, I felt awful. And no, like, no, was I like the father that, you know, beats up his wife in front of his kids? Like, was I like any of those things? No. But, but was there this inroad for really awful stuff to come through me and really mess with my students? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And it was this realization and the wisdom of my undergraduate art professor kind of coming together in my mid-20s and I realized he he got it like he realized that it's not about what's going on out there it's about what's going on inside of you right because whatever's going on inside of you is going to get to your kids it's going to come out you're an artist of life and when when I'm like, and this was, you're like, I'm pausing because I want to come up with the right words. Here's, here's what I realized. You don't react negatively to things out there unless that thing is somehow in some way inside of you. That idea really pissed me off the first time I heard it. I was like, what? Like, are you trying to equate me with these monsters out here that, that I don't like, you know? No, it's not the same thing, right? But the truth of the matter is, if you really, really have a reaction to something in the world, it's because there's something in you that's very similar reacting to it you have the capacity to make the thing that is really upsetting you right like this is how artistry functions when you react to something in the world it's because that thing is inside of you already (laughs) if it's not in there you know, you'll, you'll definitely feel sad. You'll definitely be like, oh, what the heck? You know, this is like so messed up. Um, I remember when I learned that one of my kids was seeing violence at home between his parents. I was devastated, devastated. And at no point did I think monster. Because that particular brand of shit isn't, doesn't happen to live inside of me. Right? But you know what particular brand of shit did live inside of me? The, the brand of shit that can shame kids in front of their peers. So when I heard the story of Joe, I had this visceral, like, fuck that woman. She's awful, right? And this lesson changed my life. Like, what you react to out there gives you this massive insight into what's going on in here. And I 
can't describe well enough with words how much this shifted my, my entire perspective. Um, and so I'm not going to try. Instead, I, I wanted to tell you a story that I think does a decent job at explaining what I mean. So um, a couple years ago, I was, um, I see a chiropractor here in Austin, um, once a month and the chiropractor that I normally see, um, who I adore and I've been seeing forever is the only chiropractor, by the way, that I've ever seen, um, was out of town and I really threw out my back. I was in a lot of pain and I needed to, you know, get in for an adjustment. And my good friend was like, Hey, I have this great, he's this amazing guy. He's up um, kind of far, you know, far away from where you live, but it's worth the drive. You should definitely check it out. So I make an appointment. Um, I go in and <laughs> I sit down on this guy's table. And this is, this is the second person I've ever seen. And for those of you that are familiar with chiropractors, you know that they're all really different. They all have a totally different style. And you know, the, the ones that have been practiced a really long time, they won't always like tell you what's about to happen. And I didn't know that this was even remotely a thing as I had been so used to this one practitioner that I just assumed it was going to be really similar. And this guy was quite a bit more aggressive and, and, and he was not an explainer. And so without telling me what he was doing at all, he, he tells me to open my mouth and I'm like thinking, oh, like it's going to be one of those things where like I open my mouth and he like cracks my neck or something like that. So I open my mouth and without warning me at all, he jams his finger into my mouth and pushes into the corner of my cheek so hard that my eyes started to water like it hurt. And I had, <laughs> I'm laughing now, but. I was like so terrified. It was weird. I was terrified. I still don't totally know why. It was just because there was no warning and it hurt and it was in my mouth. And I just like rip his hand out of my mouth and I, and I yell at him and y'all who know me know I'm not a yeller. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, that was irresponsible. <laughs> I told him he was irresponsible <laughs> And he was an older guy. It was like white hair, like probably been doing this his whole career. And he just like stares at me and he's like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, sorry's not enough. And I stand up like now I'm crying and I'm like, that was so messed up. You don't. And then I kept, and this is what I kept saying. That was so messed up. You just don't do that. You just don't do that. And what I would, I should have said <laughs> was you don't put your finger in someone's mouth without warning them. Right. Um, and I said, session over. I had no desire, <laughs> like no desire. Um, he was very uncomfortable. Like he couldn't even look at me. He's like, I'm so sorry. He's like, and I just stormed the fuck out of there. Like I, I paid and I left just boom. I, um, and that might've been the end of the story. Except then like a couple hours later, I had a session with this woman here in Austin, um, also monthly. 
I have the fortune of being able to get energy work done. And between energy work and Cairo, I feel pretty freaking great, y'all. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to do these things. And I didn't, up until recently, have the privilege to do them. And they've changed my life together. And so I often would book them on the same day. And I happen to have a session with with this Reiki practitioner who I love. I've been seeing her for a couple years now. And before we would do the energy session, she would ask if there's anything I wanted to talk about. And I said, yes, let me tell you this bullshit. (laughs) And so I started telling her the story, expecting that she's going to be like, that's fucked up. Like who does that? Right. And, and instead this is, and this is what she says instead. And I was, you know, not honestly ready for, for what she said next. She said, you know, she said, the reason why that was so triggering is because you still have a lot of victim energy inside of you from your childhood of feeling victimized. And instead of speaking up, you know, calmly and assertively, like someone who's, you know, not a victim, you immediately went into victim mode and you know started crying. It was an opportunity for you to see that energy. And in some ways, you know, you can thank this guy because he gave you an opportunity to see that energy inside of yourself so that you can change it and and create something new, you know, going forward in your life. <laughs> and I, I, I felt this is, this is what was so funny was that I felt myself starting to want to call her irresponsible as well. Like the same words, like welled up in my throat. Like what, what the heck? Like here I am, I'm coming to you. I'm almost in tears. I've had this terrible day. I'm paying you all this money. Why are you, why are you putting this on me? Why are you making this my issue? I wasn't the one that stuck a finger in a stranger's mouth. Like how dare you? How dare you make this about me? But because I, I almost used the same word, right? The, the irresponsible word almost came out of my mouth a second time in the same day. That was the trigger. And I thought, oh, shit, this is about me. I'm about to go through the exact same pattern with her. Like she's making me feel like a victim too, or is she? Am I or am I making myself feel like a victim because I have this crap undealt with inside of me? And oh, that was a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> because I so badly, and I know that people who are listening to this can relate, I so badly wanted to go with the narrative, the, the narrative of when I make things in my life, including storming out of a chiropractor's office, including about to tell off my energy instructor. <laughs> I so badly want to believe that, that that is the right thing, that when I make decisions, it's coming from this like really good, pure place. And the truth of the matter is, we all have the capacity to create the exact things that we hate. And here I was doing exactly that, recreating this massive victim energy because I still hadn't totally dealt with some of it from when I was younger. And 
So, so this is a little bit of a random story, but I wanted to share it because it loops back into how I got stuck, you know, with Kyle doing the same type of thing. It's how I think a lot of us get stuck when we see really awful stuff happening in the world and our knee-jerk reaction, and and I know you've seen this everywhere because I've seen it too, our knee-jerk reaction is to condemn violence, condemn them as monsters, talk about our privilege and how we don't know better, and to vilify and to judge. I've seen all kinds of posts that look really beautiful that that are vilifying this kind of violence. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Like there's nothing wrong with that. When we were sitting in this undergraduate classroom listening to this American flag coloring story all of us like look at each other like that bitch (laughs) right like I you know that's an awful word to use and yet it's real isn't it you know those words like we think them we're like that woman sucks who does that to a seven-year-old like that's violent (laughs) that's like seven-year-old violence right there and there's nothing wrong with doing that because it was true. Like what she did was pretty awful. And then six years later, I was doing the same thing. And it woke me up to the fact that this goodness that I, this inherent goodness that I thought I had, you know, in some ways was a myth that we're all like incredibly fallible incredibly fallible and no you know I'm I'm not going to go out and shoot up spas but but if I'm reacting to this in the media is there something inside of me that is similar that I need to look at lest I create the things that I hate am I suggesting that if you hated reading this in the media that you are going to go out and do the same thing no not at all (laughs) No. Um, What I am suggesting is that it's a creative inroad, though. Just like Joe is suggesting. He's like, this is an inroad. This story is an inroad for you to remember. So that when and if you do this same thing, you can create better going forward. And that is the thing that I don't see happening as much as I would like. And that's why this crap keeps happening over and over these violent things and we hear that sort of despair reflected in social media among our friends and in the news why does this keep happening possibly because and this is just one reason of many by the way this is a multifaceted thing that we're talking about here Possibly because there's so many really quote-unquote good people who say, I would never do that. And yeah, they may, they very well may never do that. Most of them will never do that. And there's, if they're reacting to the problem, there's something about the problem that they have to face inside themselves 
or they will create the thing that they don't want to create. Paulo Freire, he's a philosopher, a Brazilian philosopher and dissident, wrote this beautiful essay on this called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it was specifically about oppression. And his thesis was amazing. I had honestly never run across this idea before reading his stuff. And what he said, uh, you should read it, but in summary, one of the things he said is, almost all of the time, almost all of the time, when people resist oppression, resist their oppressors, inevitably they end up doing the exact same things that they're trying to resist. Inevitably they end up acting like their oppressors. And he was fascinated with this idea, like why, why, this doesn't make any sense, it's so counterintuitive, why would they create the thing that they're trying to fight? Why would they do more of the thing that they're so against? And his thesis was very multifaceted, but one of the things that he said was, we need to evolve inside, not just outside. You know, we can have revolution after revolution outside, but if if we're not personally and individually doing lots of inner work, that will eventually lead to a collective consciousness raising, we are going to continue to make the stuff we hate. Even the best of us, even the most good. <laughs> Martin Luther King knew this. I've talked about this before. Um, and I, I've really, I resisted telling this story for a long time because his story is not one for a white girl to tell, right? Like I... There are so many more, much more, more educated people on his life than me, for sure. But, you know, I heard this story about him years ago and it changed my life and I wish I heard more people tell it. And it was the story that when Martin Luther King would gather people before rallies to speak to them, he would do something so different than other organizers and leaders. He would frame white folks as the victims, which is like so radical, <laughs> right? Who, do, who does that? Um, and Martin Luther King was certainly not weak. He was certainly very strongly opposed to white supremacy and racism of all kinds. And he did not back down even a little bit. But when he would speak to his followers, he would say, this culture has poisoned white folks in a way that it has not poisoned you. It's poisoned them enough to hate and to do awful things at the very worst. And at the very best, it's poisoned them to put up with this shit. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I'm paraphrasing. I'm pretty sure he didn't say shit. But he said, we're in a position to create some healing for them. And that framework is radical. Instead of framing them as the enemy, he was raising the consciousness around the issue. He was trying to evolve people's perspective, right? Because in the past... Fighting oppression was always about fighting an enemy. 
And what Martin Luther King was trying to do was to create better. Instead of creating the same battle, doing the same shit that their oppressors were doing back at them, he was like, no, we're better than this. We literally haven't been poisoned. We can heal them and then we can all live together harmoniously in peace. All of us get to win in this scenario. To me, that story does this amazing job of describing what it's like when someone truly understands the idea of creating what you really want. (laughs) And the only way to really create what you want is to recognize inside of yourself the capacity to create what you hate. And I don't know if this was something consciously that Martin Luther King Jr. did. I have no idea at all. Like, like outside of this story and some of the things that I've read about his life, you know, I'm not an expert, even close. But I suspect that he did. I suspect that he took really long, deep looks at his own inner demons to be able to have this kind of conversation with his followers. Like, it's true. It's truly radical, right? Like he saw atrocious acts of violence against his family, against his community over and over and over again. And to be able to stand up in front of groups of people and say, these folks over here that are doing all this crap, these are actually victims too. That's, that's next level artistry. I I can't think of anything more artistic than that (laughs) off the top of my head. You know, to be able to create at that level is is true is true mastery. That type of thing is, I guess, what I mean when I say that we're artists of our life. And MLK Jr. had this understanding that if you don't face that stuff inside of yourself, you'll create exactly what you hate over and over again. And just like you know, in my classroom, just like with that chiropractor, like things that I was so against would get played out in my own life. (laughs) And the first time someone suggested to me that I had an opportunity to look inside, I freaked out. Like (laughs) when my, when that energy teacher, when that my Reiki instructor suggested, oh, maybe this is inside of you. And like, this is a gift, right? I just, oh, I wanted to, cause y'all, I'm a little spicy. I, <laughs> I'm a, I'm so sensitive and I'm, I think that I'm a pretty gentle person and I tread very softly in some ways. And in other ways I get so like, I'm a volcano <laughs> and I was just lit up by that idea. I like was ready to stick both middle fingers up in the air and walk out of her office too. Like, how dare you? How dare you make this about me? Right. And I I suspect some people listening to this, you know, they might have had that feeling. Like if you're still listening to this, that's amazing. Cause some people might've stopped listening a while ago, (laughs) you know, but here's this chick in a podcast who's saying, oh, like this terrible violence happens against the Asian community and maybe this is an opportunity to look at our own inner demons. I'm I'm sure there were some people that are like, screw you. (laughs) I would never do that. What does this have to do with me? And I get that. 
I'm like 100% with you there. But this idea, and some people may be wondering, what does this have to do with artistry? It, it has to do with being an artist of life. Like we're collectively desperately trying to create something different. And history has been repeating itself for a really long time in certain areas. There are, there are areas of our collective life together that have changed very little in a very long time. And most of us are waking up to that. Not everybody, but a lot of us are waking up to that in a way that hasn't ever happened historically. And this, to me, is a really important foundation to making something different is to thinking about the ways that we're capable of making the things that we hate the most. Because that's where that the revolution's going to happen this time. The revolution is going to happen inside each of us as we start to really look at how we're artists of what we hate. It's an unformed idea. This is the first time, <laughs> it's the first time I've shared something like this. And so it's probably crunchy and incomplete. And, and as I always say, take what resonates with you and leave the rest. But I think there's some gems in there that are worth thinking about. And whatever parts really stuck with you, you know, it's worth thinking about those parts. And then the parts that just feel gross, just leave them, <laughs> you know? I left my Reiki instructor's office um, pretty furious that day like her suggestion didn't even remotely sit with me for another six months like I, I couldn't wrap my head around it and I realize now that it I, that was like perfect right it wasn't a good time for me to wrap my head around it I had just been like traumatized in a chiropractor's office right like and so if you're feeling really lit up by the state of the world and you're like screw you Borelli you know I'm sorry I'm not there you know, good. Don't be there. That's fine. Um, this episode is not a call to action. It's not a call to make anything different in your life right now at all. It's a call to what Joe said to all of us in my undergrad class. You don't need to do anything with this story except recognize it. Because I guarantee a day from now, a week from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, this will help you somehow. And that's the point. That's the point. <sighs> I hope it helps. Take what resonates with you, leave the rest. I love y'all. And I look forward to next week bringing you the voice of one of my mentors, Andrea, um, to talk about all the things art education. Um, yeah, I love y'all. I love y'all. Did I say, I think I said that like twice already, <laughs> but it bears repeating. I do. Thank you for spending your time with me in this way until next time. Peace.